Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, Aspie Executive Director Peter Jennings talks to Clive Hamilton, author of Silent Invasion, about his new book, Hidden Hand. And Aspie's Dr. Huang Li Thu speaks to author of Aspie's latest strategic insight publication, Professor Thitinan Ponsudarak. But first, Aspie's Kelsey Munro speaks to James Leibold and Emile Dirks, report authors of Aspie's International Cyber Center's latest report, Genomic Surveillance, about China's national campaign of compulsory DNA data collection, the world's largest police-run DNA database. Uh, Emil and James, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and congratulations on your report. Thank you so much. Thanks. So it's it's called Genomic Surveillance Inside China's DNA Dragnet and it um, detail, details the development and the kind of extraordinary scale of China's national DNA database collection program and it's, it's the world's largest police-run database of its kind. I was hoping we could start by explaining, I mean, don't all or most countries use DNA in law enforcement? Can you explain what's different about China's use of this technology? Um, sure. So, yes, all countries or most countries, uh, police forces use some form of uh, forensic analysis involving DNA analysis. Uh, that's not surprising. Um, and China does have a forensic database, which is full of DNA samples that they've collected uh, during criminal investigations. So these are people who are suspected or have been convicted of criminal offenses, serious criminal offenses. Uh, the difference, though, is the program that James and I have looked at is the police are deliberately targeting people who are neither suspects of uh, criminal activity, nor have they been uh, charged or um, convicted of criminal activity. Uh, and in fact, the police are collecting these DNA samples outside of any ongoing criminal investigation. So it's sort of a preemptive approach. You, they're building a database before 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 they need it, in a way. Yes, you. I mean, uh, sorry, one could make that argument. Sure. How does it work technically? So basically, the the program that they're engaged in right now is targeting specifically men and boys. So there is from our um, from our research, we found no evidence that this particular program is targeting women or girls. And what they're looking for are what's called uh, YSTR DNA data samples. Um, so unlike autosomal DNA, um, YSTR samples uh, aren't really all that great at identifying a particular person. Um, there's not really much genetic variation between a YSTR sample of a man and his uh, patrilineal blood relatives. So say, for instance, you know, my YSTR sample very similar to my dad's and my paternal grandfather's and maybe extended paternal cousins. Um, but what this particular form of data is really good at is if the police come across a DNA sample from an unknown man, you know, in the course of a forensic investigation, they come across a DNA sample from someone who they've never encountered before and they have no record of in their existing forensic database. If they have access to the YSTR sample of that man's distant male relative, and they also have, uh, or they can connect that particular um, sample to uh, larger uh, family trees, showing the relationship between that sample and um, a family, they may be able to actually identify who this particular uh, sample comes from. Um, and if not that, then what is the patrilineal family that the sample comes from? 
So essentially, it would be a way of making it easier for the police to identify um, even unknown DNA samples taken from men to tie it back to family or even an individual. And is that a more, I guess, cost-effective process for the authorities too? Because they, they, they have had used similar programs but with more widespread collection in places like Xinjiang and Tibet. Isn't that right? Yeah. So in Xinjiang and Tibet, um, maybe about uh, six, seven years ago, starting in Tibet around 2012-2013, um, through a series of physical, um, so-called physical examinations, um, authorities collected genetic data from essentially all of Tibet's 3 million plus people. And a similar program was put in place in Xinjiang, and they collected data from, we estimate, more than 20 million people through a similar program of physical examinations. Um, but yes, in the case, if you look outside of those areas, though, I mean, China's a huge country, 1.4 billion people. It's simply not feasible, at least at the moment, to collect DNA samples from everyone. Um, so collecting DNA samples from a representative subsection of the male population is a much more cost-effective method of gaining a certain kind of genetic uh, surveillance over the male population. Mm, okay. I, th I think it's estimated uh, in, in the eyes of the authorities that they can collect DNA samples from around 5 to 10% of China's male population. Uh, they feel like they have a, a, a complete genomic map of at least the male population in China. Wow. And so when we think of the male population, we're talking 700 million people. So mm -hmm. 5 to 10% uh, doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about the scale of that program, it means the government is, by our estimates, aiming to collect data from around 35 to 70 million people. So there is a, a precedent for the existing or the ongoing data collection program that we document in our report. And that precedent is from 2014 to 2016, the Public Security Bureau of Henan province collected roughly 10% uh, sample, YSDR samples from roughly 10% of the male population. And according to Chinese researchers, this would have given the police coverage of roughly 98.7% of the province's male population. So that gives you a sense that in the eyes of the Ministry of Public Security, in the eyes of the Chinese police, they probably think that, well, if we can capture roughly 5 to 10% of the, uh, the YSCR samples of Chinese male population, we should be able to get close to perfect coverage of China's 700 million men. Wow, that's extraordinary. And, I mean, how do, obviously consent is a problematic concept in a sort of authoritarian context like this, but how do the Chinese people aware of it feel about the program? I mean, I noted the New York Times report of your research said it was running into an unusual amount of opposition in China. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's mixed, Kelsey. Um, I think, you know, in a, an authoritarian state, as you said, it's, uh, you know, virtually impossible uh, to resist a request for a biological sample. It doesn't mean that people um, feel comfortable with that, and some may uh, dig in their heels or uh, find ways to to try to uh, resist, at least in the short term. But the Chinese state has so many levers that it can pull uh, to ensure it gets what it wants. And but at the same time, I think uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, this is just the norm. They, they a lot of people in China. 
uh, have become quite fatalistic about the fact that the party state knows everything about their lives and uh, them collecting blood is uh, no different from the fact that they monitor uh, the internet or that they, uh, you know, ask every individual to carry an ID card everywhere they go with, uh, which soon will be linked with uh, this biometric uh, data. So, um, yeah, we don't have the same level uh, of privacy uh, considerations in China. Um, but of course, that doesn't make this uh, something that should be condoned. And I think just to jump in there as well, like I, I completely agree with what James said. This is what our report argues. Um, but one thing to consider as well is that um, this program has been going on since late 2017. And our report and Sui Lee's report in New York Times, this is really the first large public discussion of this program that exists um, at uh, discussing it at the national level. So even though the Chinese government, the Ministry of Public Security, has been engaged in collecting um, YSTR samples from men across China for more than two years now, they really haven't admitted this to the public, which I think in our minds suggests that they mm. do know that there's a certain sensitivity around these issues, that mm. it's possible that were they to be open, um, quite blatant in what they're doing and to announce this, had they announced this nationally uh, back in 2017, there might have been might have been pushback. Mm. Um, and it's also, I think, um, reinforcing this view um, or reinforcing this suspicion on my part is that a lot of the data collection is taking place in largely rural areas um, or peri-urban areas. So you're not seeing people in Beijing or Shanghai or Nanjing, these really large cities having their data collected. You're seeing people in rural areas or peri-urban areas connected to larger cities. And one of, the, one of the suspicions I would have around that is yeah. that they probably believe if they conduct data collection in those areas, people are, one, less likely to um, resist those efforts for one reason or another, and also that perhaps those data collection efforts will not, won't be subjected to the same kind of scrutiny that they would were they collecting data samples from, say, middle-class, university-educated people in downtown Beijing. Mm, that's interesting. Is there much information about how this national DNA database would interact in practice with, you know, the, the Chinese authorities, other kind of huge apparatus of surveillance, like the, the facial recognition cameras, the internet monitoring, or the social credit system? Do we know how it links with those systems? Well, I, th I think a good way to think about it is that what China's trying to, to develop is what um, researchers call a kind of multimodal form of surveillance that will have uh, a range of uh, data on individual citizens. Uh, so everything from iris scans to, uh, you know, high definition uh, facial images, uh, DNA, uh, fingerprints, uh, etc. And uh, then link those back uh, to, uh, you know, the uh, ID number that uh, is linked to, to every individual's uh, national identity card. Um, and, and that way you have a range of kind of data points that can be useful for identifying individuals uh, depending on the circumstance. Um, you know, DNA is quite uh, powerful in the sense that, you know, it can be left behind uh, and it also can be planted on someone. Uh, so 
it, it's just one mm-hmm. element of a, a you know a very kind of sophisticated uh, set of uh, surveillance tools. So I think this needs to be my last question because we're running out of time. But so um, U.S.-based biotech companies like Thermo Fisher Scientific and major Chinese companies like AGCU Scientific and uh, Micro Red Genetics. I hope I'm saying that correctly, have been involved in supplying equipment and support um, to this database. Can you explain their role and also if you got any response from the companies um, to the evidence in your report? Well, maybe I'll start with the, the big picture. I mean, Kelsey, the, you know, the DNA, uh, forensic DNA marketplace is uh, quite large and, and quite lucrative in China, uh, estimated by one uh, marketing company to be worth uh, US $1.4 billion uh, in total. And so uh, you have uh, both multinational companies and domestic companies kind of scrambling for a share of the profits at the present. Uh, multinationals like uh, Thermo Fisher really dominate the uh, equipment sales, but um, you know Chinese companies are making quick inroads. Uh, and what we did in the report is we documented that two dozen Chinese and multinational companies were supplying local uh, police authorities with the uh, the YSTR uh, equipment as well as software. Um, the uh, we did reach out to uh, the companies named in the report. Thus far, the only company, well, in fact, no companies have responded directly to us and to ASPI. Uh, but uh, Thermo Fisher did uh, issue a very short uh, statement uh, to the New York Times. Uh, Emil, do you want to talk about the their response, which was uh, rather curious, I had to say? Yes, from what it seems that um, with Thermo Fisher in the past the reporting by Sui Li about their involvement with DNA data collection in Xinjiang um, in response to the reporting she did and previous research done by Human Rights Watch and other organizations, uh, they made the decision to no longer sell forensic DNA testing kits and related paraphernalia in Xinjiang. Um, but through our uh, research into this current program, we know that they're selling the kits and the testing equipment that the police are using to collect YSTR samples from men and boys across China. Um, In their response, they noted that they had ceased collect or ceased selling goods in Xinjiang, um, but then went on to say that they were proud, I hope I'm not misquoting right now, but you know, that they, they took pride in the fact that their equipment was being used to free people who were unjustly convicted, to help combat human trafficking, and to help forensic investigators. But of course, in the case of this particular national program of, of YSTR data collection, um, none of the people are alleged to be, have been victims of human trafficking or to be related to people who have been trafficked. None of them are accused of any criminal activity. In fact, the data collection is happening outside of any sort of criminal investigation. And of course, none of them have been um, formally accused or charged or convicted of a crime. So in that sense, even by their own standards, the equipment, the kits that they're selling to the police, and the, which the police are now using as part of this large-scale data collection program, they don't even meet the standards that they themselves set out. And I think the other thing that we documented just uh, briefly and finally uh, is that uh, Thermo Fisher uh, really bent over backwards to work very closely with the uh, Chinese police uh, in developing uh, kits, DNA uh, testing kits and analysis kits 
uh, for the Chinese marketplace, um, including uh, kits that would allow for uh, enhanced discriminative capacity tailored for China's ethnic makeup. Um, so, so, so essentially trying to assist the uh, Chinese authorities with uh, phenotype uh, analysis of samples that would allow uh, police to identify whether an unknown sample uh, was from a Uyghur or a Tibetan or a Han Chinese. Uh, so that, you know, goes towards that, that kind of uh, discriminatory uh, uh, policing uh, that is quite prevalent um, in, in China today. Yeah, the ethnic profiling. That's fascinating. Well, it'll be really interesting to see what um, what reactions um, come out of out of your research. But thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us today, Emil and James. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Next, Aspie Executive Director Peter Jennings speaks to author Clive Hamilton about his new book, Hidden Hand. The book discusses the covert techniques used by the CCP for its influence and interference operations within universities, big business, think tanks, and in diplomatic service. Well, Clive, welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. It's great to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. And uh, of course, you've been writing about uh, China and uh, its uh, influencing attempts for, for some time now. Silent Invasion was uh, February 2018. Now you've gone global along with Marika Olberg in producing um, Hidden Hand, subtitled Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World. I, I guess uh, my starting point was really to reflect on your own observation at the beginning of the book, Clive, that you, you were perhaps um, surprised uh, at the degree to which we see fragility of Western institutions when it comes to handling Chinese influencing attempts. Uh, share some of your thoughts with us about those institutions. Why have we, at this point, apparently reached a point of such fragility? Well, I guess the, the kind of er case of uh, the fragility of democracy is uh, that the United States under Donald Trump, we've seen how one man uh, with a bizarre worldview and a kind of obsession with his own power has been able to really destabilise so much of the structure of the American uh, democratic system. And, of course, that's been um, gold uh, for the Chinese Communist Party. So we have this kind of odd situation that the man who has more than any other uh, pushed back against the CCP's global influence and its rising economic domination is also the one that has created the circumstances globally that have uh, facilitated the CCP's push. Um, of course, Trump has also broken down and often dissed the uh, global alliance system. I mean, some of the traditional friends who ought to be getting together to push back against CCP influence, I'm thinking Europe in particular, became extremely alienated from Trump. And so, uh, you know, with good reason. And so I note in Germany, for instance, uh, unlike most other countries, the kind of um, anger at the wolf warrior diplomacy of, uh, in China has not really um, uh, cut through uh, in Germany. Uh, and along with the extraordinary power of uh, German industry, particularly the auto industry, Germany is taking a very kind of soft approach and wants to cultivate deeper links with uh, Beijing. And I think this has uh, been facilitated by the way Trump 
behave? Well, I, I, I've certainly observed in the German context it, almost the counterproductive way in which the United States has attempted to, for example, persuade Germany uh, not to allow Chinese companies into the 5G network. Um, I, I think some American interventions might have inclined the Germans to perhaps be a bit more open to the, the other ways of uh, thinking about it. How about the UK? I mean, here we have a country with its own uh, diversions, um, put COVID to one side, but Brexit, of course, has been the British obsession for, for several years. And they have also, I think, perhaps seen more upside opportunity than downside risk in, in dealing with uh, China. Well, it's very interesting because I paid a lot of attention to the UK at the start of the book. And after a while, looking for influence activities, United Front and so on, I said to Marika, hey, yeah, uh, very little around indicating that CCP has been heavily engaged in targeting the United Kingdom. And she, being a European, uh, Berlin-based, said, well, just keep looking, Clive. And so uh, it's there. And so I did. And as I dug more deeply, I was really quite astonished at the way, extremely subtle and clever way that uh, CCP uh, agents and organisations had uh, infiltrated, if I can put it that way, the really top levels of Britain's elites, political and business uh, in particular, but also media and cultural and, of course, academic. And so by the end of the research process, you know, we end up uh, uh, telling a really quite extraordinary story about what has happened in Britain and the way in which so many powerful people, including prime ministers, had been co-opted. And we concluded uh, after discussions that we we really wondered whether Britain was now in so deeply that um, it was beyond the point of no return. And so events in the last two months have been extremely interesting because the COVID crisis and, and, and Hong Kong have really brought uh, out of the woodwork some very influential, let's say, pro-democratic voices, particularly within the Conservative which has made life very difficult for Boris Johnson, who was inclined, as you know, uh, to go along with the May government's decision to allow Huawei into the 5G network, a catastrophic uh, decision, uh, as we said, uh, from Australia. Uh, but the tide seems to have turned. Well, I'm not going to quite say that. I'll say, well, let me stress, seems to have, because as we detail in the book, the influence of the CCP and its agencies at top-level elites in Britain hasn't gone away. They're there. They're just lying low. So we'll see when the immediate crisis passes and perhaps when the Hong Kong situation uh, dies down, although that seems that it will go on for quite some time, uh, we will see these pro-Beijing forces within the elite start to exert their influence again and perhaps uh, try to take Britain back to the golden era that Beijing London declared. I don't know if it's uh, wishful thinking on my part, uh, Clive, but I, I look at some aspects of wolf warrior diplomacy and ask myself, is this the signs of Chinese panic, Communist Party panic, that the, the wheels are beginning to fall off the, the Belt and Road initiative um, and that the panic is now pushing them to sort of ever more strident ways of expressing themselves that really has a counterproductive effect, I think, from a perspective of China's long-term interests. Um, is this COVID um, uh, undermining the uh, Communist Party's plans or 
uh, am I being too uh, wishful thinking? Well, it's a real con- conundrum, though, walk warrior diplomacy, isn't it? Because on the one hand, um, it appears to be a manifestation of overweening confidence that, you know, we don't have to pretend anymore. Our gloves are off. We're just going to start pushing people around. And if you do something to displease us, then we're going to come after you with insults, with threats, with real punishments, as we in Australia are seeing today. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if, uh, if Beijing had called in you know, one of the world's top PR companies, and the world's top PR companies quite frequently advise dictatorships on how better to improve their image, they would have told them, don't engage in this kind of insulting, provocative, bullying behaviour because people don't like to be bullied and you really don't want to get the backs up of the general public in places like Britain and France, uh, as they have done, not to mention uh, Australia and, uh, and, and Canada. So it seems to be contradictory, and there's no doubt that I think in some countries, I'm thinking France, Britain, Canada, it, it's really backfired. And maybe it's because they don't understand democracy. I mean, remember the Chinese Communist Party, there's a very particular understanding of how power is distributed and how it's wielded, and they focus very much on elites. And they kind of forget that uh, elites, particularly political elites, um, but even business elites, have to respond <clears throat> to public pressure if public pressure becomes uh, too intense. And so there's been a huge increase in anti-Beijing sentiment in some uh, countries, which has made it very difficult for Beijing supporters, not least for in Australia, uh, to continue to speak out in public and even behind the scenes to do their uh, Beijing whispering, if we can put it that way. So COVID uh, and the CCP's management of it in the early days and then its later wolf warrior diplomacy has undoubtedly been a massive propaganda setback for the party and they don't seem to have worked out how to come back from that because they are in trouble. Come back from it, they will. Um, they will recalibrate, uh, uh, but uh, it's a bit hard to uh, see now how it might unfold in the, in the months to come. I can imagine how a communist party under different leadership could, could walk back from this situation, but it seems to me now if you consider Xi Jinping in particular that you know he, it's his personal authority is tied to the mishandling of covid uh, his, it's his personal authority that's tied to Belt and Road, therefore he has to make Belt and Road a success. Have we got to a point where the only way China can reverse course on this is to see Xi Jinping ultimately deposed from the leadership? Well, that's certainly uh, one way and perhaps the, the, the most plausible way whereby the uh, CCP might step back and recalibrate because uh, by um, toppling uh, presidency, it would give them the excuse to do it. Now, the question is whether there are adequate forces within the party to do that. As we know, uh, Xi Jinping uh, crushed them all, expelled them, jailed them, marginalised them, uh, put them in jail with charges of corruption, all kinds of things, and put his people across the institutions in power. Of course, we know from history that's not always enough. Um, you know, those people in the military, for example, in the party, in the senior business positions and so on. They have their own interests, uh, survival, uh, uh, money, 
And let's not forget that the uh, red aristocracy is heavily involved in the in uh, Chinese China's corporate uh, uh, structure. And so we can't see it at the moment, but or at least the, the, the people who are very have a much deeper understanding of uh, what's happening within the party than I do are, are, are suggesting that it's hard to see uh, a uh, an anti-Z faction that's there and could potentially uh, oust him. But then it's also true that, uh, again, from history, these things are often not seeable in advance. They just suddenly uh, come together. And certainly, uh, I think Xi Jinping's position is, is very fragile. I mean, he might come out of it the ultimate leader, uh, but on the other hand, if things go badly, if there were, for example, another big outbreak of COVID, uh, or if there's some military adventure that goes pear-shaped, uh, all kinds of things could happen, then uh, the president would uh, be in severe trouble. Uh, Clive, I wanted to, your uh, new book really focuses on the, the democratic West, but I wanted to drag you back to uh, Australia just for one one question. Um, you, uh, you quote the wonderful Upton Sinclair quote at the beginning of your book, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Um, and I wondered if you could apply that to uh, for me to the Australian university experience. Um, obviously, our universities are now confronting a really serious challenge to their business model because of COVID. And that's leading some, at least, to call on government to find mechanisms to get large numbers of Chinese students back into Australia. I've written elsewhere that that is a business model that's probably permanently broken for reasons of the virus, if not for political reasons. But how do you, um, two years on from uh, silent invasion, think about the position of Australian universities now? Um, and, uh, you know, is there going to be a, a future for them that, that helps to break this dependence on the income stream, which is uh, derived largely from big numbers of Chinese students? It's impossible, I think, to see universities going back to where they were uh, six months ago. So much has happened that has brought the whole model crashing to the ground. I mean, it's possible. Possibly I'm unduly influenced by events at the University of Queensland with the persecution of, the, of Drew Pavlou, the strong uh, CCP critic. I noticed the other day a small report in the Courier-Mail uh, saying that uh, graduates, uh, alumni of um, UQ were deserting it in droves uh, as they uh, go to them to appeal for donations. I mean, the UQ has suffered a massive, massive reputational loss. So that's not entirely a separate issue, of course, because there are other universities where exactly the same kind of thing could have happened because the university executives are so captured. Uh, I'm thinking, for some reason, the University of Sydney always comes immediately to mind. But the point out, there's a really important point here, and this is something I've made in the context of a certain uh, mining magnate who is, uh, presents himself and he is in a way Beijing's uh, best friend in Australia. And it's easy, you know, we, we're kind of um, uh, accustomed uh, to thinking about people uh, responding to their financial interests, the Upton Sinclair 
a quote goes to that. But if you think about it, he said it's difficult to get a man to understand. And I've argued that if that mining magnate sold all of his shares and interests tomorrow and had no financial interest in China whatever, he would continue to believe what he believes uh, and he would continue to argue it. In other words, uh, rather than a, a real kind of transactional understanding which guides people's behaviour, there's a much more subtle and dangerous and difficult to deal with problem of what I started to call grooming because it fits the definition pretty well. And so I think it's the, the groomed minds within our universities as well as in uh, elements of our business communities that are the real problem that the universities have to overcome. Of course, they have to re-strategize, rethink their futures, uh, reconsider their reliance on uh, international students, particularly Chinese ones. Uh, but the other thing they need to do is, is to kind of purge themselves of this, um, this view that uh, their success depends on sucking up to Beijing. And that's rife within Australia's universities. Not all of them, but, but certainly the group of eight. And so I think that's the longer term challenge that the universities need to tackle. I think uh, you, you put your finger on a problem which is really broader than senior university administrators. There's almost, in some sectors, uh, an elite consensus in Australia uh, for amongst, uh, for example, amongst senior levels of uh, public service that, you know, this relationship with China has been the vehicle uh, that has um, ensured Australian growth for the better part of 20 years. And it's very hard for that group to actually work out that, in fact, we're now at a point where the, the risk of the relationship is significantly greater than the opportunities. The, their careers have been built on creating that relationship. And now we're asking them to rethink this and work out ways to put more distance between ourselves and China. It's, it's very hard for a lot of people. Absolutely. And uh, one that came to mind the other day when I was writing a submission to this parliamentary inquiry into uh, the diversification of trade um, was on the question of diversification and what the government do to encourage it. Um, and one suggestion I made is that Austrade should be instructed to, um, rather than relentlessly focusing on development of uh, links with uh, China, to actively pursue diversification for certain sectors away from China. But in order to do that, uh, you would actually need a whole kind of cultural clean-out of Austrade because the organisation, as you say, Peter, has been captured by this view. I mean, it's, it's self-definition. It's how those people define their roles in life. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, it's exceptionally difficult for people to make that kind of change, uh, even if they're instructed to do so by the minister, because they're now locked into a whole network of connections and relationships and self-reinforcing uh, uh, opinions and world and worldview within that organisation which makes it exceptionally hard for it to make that transition. So we shouldn't um, um, underestimate how difficult it will be after many, many years of this um, uh, developing view that Australia's future depends on China, something, of course, which the Chinese Communist Party has cultivated at every opportunity. I wonder if, I, don't, I haven't seen it, but I, you know, this might be a surprise to people, but 
my original training, my PhD is in economics. And so I do actually think as an economist frequently, despite the fact that I never work in the field, but, you know, without China, um, uh, if you just kind of took it out of the picture, I'm, I'm guessing over the last 20 years, Australia's growth rate, GDP growth rate might have been, you know, half or, or maybe 1% less than it would have been. But without China, other things would have emerged, the whole, you know, opportunity cost, other opportunities. And, and so it probably would have cost us, you know, on net terms, half a percent of our growth rate. So this is not the whole of Australia's development has depended on China and will continue to depend on China. I'm not saying China's not important. It will be and it will continue to be. And decoupling as a general strategy you know, won't work and is not desirable. But certainly there are a whole a series of sectors where there will be and should be some hedging, decoupling, diversification. And of course, one last point here, which I'm, I'm sure you're very alert to, and that is that we're definitely seeing, which is something I actually suggested would happen a couple of years ago, uh, that the world is dividing into two technological spheres. That's, I mean, China's always been doing that itself. <laughs> and now the US is saying, hang on, uh, this integration business isn't working in our interests and we need to protect ourselves. Uh, and um, and they, the US is now creating, I think it will create a whole technological world from which China is to a substantial extent uh, cut out and every nation, including Australia, will need to choose which way are we going to go technologically. Yes, I think that is that is the world we're, we're heading to. It's been quite a journey, Clive, I suspect, for, for the both of us. Um, do you end up more pessimistic having concluded this latest book or less um, compared to where you were a couple of years ago with uh, Silent Invasion? It's been really fascinating to uh, track it uh, for the uh, rest of the world, or the Western world at least, uh, because... Um, it's given me a, a much sort of closer sense of how the process has worked in other countries, in our allies uh, of the Western Alliance, uh, essentially. And I was really quite pessimistic for some countries. I mentioned the UK, uh, a bit more optimistic for others, uh, worried about the breakdown in collaboration between Western allies in pushing back against China. But everything has been thrown up in the air as a result of the COVID crisis. And um, tragic as it has been, of course, um, uh, in so many different ways, it has galvanised thinking in Western capitals about Beijing and its objective and its techniques. And, and so I'm more confident now than I was, uh, you know, at the end of last year that some kind of sustained pushback uh, will be possible. Clive, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on the latest book, Hidden Hand, uh, available in all good bookshop bookshops. I, I commend it to uh, our audience. And thanks again, Clive. Thanks, Peter. Finally, Senior Aspie Analyst Dr Huang Li Thu talks to Professor Thitinan Ponsudarak about his new Aspie Strategic Insight publication, Thailand's Strategic Drift, Domestic Determinants Amid Superpower Competition. I'm very pleased to release this week's new report entitled Thailand's Strategic Drift, Domestic Determinants Amidst Superpower Competition, which is now available for free download from ASPI website. I'm joined today by the report's author, Professor Titinan Pongsuhidrihak, 
Welcome to the program, Titinan, and congratulations on your recent promotion to full professor. Titinan, we first spoke about this collaboration over a year ago, just before the elections in March 2019. But a lot has happened since then that not always gets sufficient coverage in Australian media. Titinan, your report discusses how this complex web of both domestic and external factors affected Thailand's strategic thinking, foreign policy and defence policy. Can you tell us some of your main arguments? Certainly. Uh, first, uh, thank you very much, uh, Hong and uh, the team there in Canberra for having me on the, the podcast. So the report really is about Thailand's uh, drift, and we call it strategic drift, and, um, and there's no other way of uh, depicting what's been happening. You know, this is a country that's uh, the birthplace, a, a co-founder of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. And in the past, during the Cold War, Thailand played an instrumental role Thailand has been famous for its uh, deaf diplomacy over the centuries, having eluded uh, imperialism, uh, survived, uh, went through uh, World War I, World War II. In the World War II, Thailand came out of it unscathed uh, because it took both sides, the Allied and the Axis, somehow, uh, officially and unofficially. And during the Cold War, Thailand had to pick a side, and it picked the, um, the winning side, the U.S. Thailand became a U.S. treaty ally from 1950s, uh, basically throughout the, the Cold War. Um, but now I'm just thinking that, you know, uh, what we've been seeing in Thailand is a kind of a, a domestic uh, preoccupations. Uh, you mentioned the election in March 2019. That election has uh, taken Thailand back uh, to the past, uh, has turned back the clock to, to a, a time where uh, the institutions that, that ruled the land were the the military, the monarchy, the bureaucracy, not political parties, not parliaments, not elected representatives. And this creates a lot of tension in the country because you can imagine a lot of people, they want to have a voice, they want to have their grievances addressed, um, and that can only be done through elected representatives and parliament and political parties to, um, to channel popular grievances, to provide popular legitimacy. However, this has not been the case in Thailand. So we've had two military coups, uh, as my report has um, uh, outlined, uh, since 2006, there was one coup, and then 2014, another coup. So these two coups really are related. Uh, it's almost uh, 2006, you know, the coup was not strong enough. So 2014, the coup really came up with a constitution that takes Thailand back to this, uh, uh, the holy trinity of institutions to rule the, the country. Also, you mentioned about the, um, uh, the new monarch uh, coronation we've had. Uh, at home, uh, as a new monarch after seven decades of uh, of one monarch, a very popular, uh, respected monarch, uh, King Kumipon, from 1946 to 2016. So this also means that you know in the uh, domestic realm uh, in Thailand, there's a lot of uh, anxieties, a lot of uh, apprehensions about you know new new era, uh, new, new era where I think. The, the monarchy and kind of a democracy that Thailand need to have in order to address uh, popular grievances and, and answer to people's demands and expectations in the 21st century, that kind of a democratic system has not been allowed to take root. Uh, and this tension between having a, a monarchy-centered society and a democracy-anchored kind of uh, polity, uh, this tension between the two uh, has uh, underpinned uh, Thailand's, um, you know, protests in the streets between the different colors, the yellows, the reds, and so on. A lot of drama, I think, that uh, 
uh, our audiences uh, and, and readers would have been familiar with uh, seeing from the news over the last two decades. Now, uh, what will have to happen um, is a kind of domestic uh, uh, reckoning. Somehow Thailand has to find a new balance. If it doesn't, we can see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of struggle, a lot of uh, factionalism, a lot of uh, maybe some confrontation, um, but it could be kind of a prolonged, protracted malaise. Uh, what this will mean for Thailand's role outside is that it will be uh, underwhelming. Uh, Thailand will be an underperformer. And this is what I mean by strategic drift. Uh, it's just drifting, uh, going from day to day, from month to month, week to week. It's not uh, setting any new foreign policy direction, no, no clear strategy for, for moving forward and more reactive rather than proactive. Uh, and, and this is consequential for our region, uh, Dr. Wong, because... You know, Thailand uh, is a kind of a, another point I try to make is, you know, if Thailand were a small country, uh, you can marginalize it. You can kind of uh, overlook it, but it's got a good location. It's right in the heart of mainland Southeast Asia. It's got a critical mass, you know, 70 million market. It, it, it's uh, central to ASEAN uh, as a founder, as a birthplace. Um, so, you know, you cannot ignore and overlook Thailand, but the problem is Thailand is so preoccupied at home with its own problems, and therefore it's, it's drifting outside. But um, this this is quite a grim picture, but at the same time, I think because Thailand's history uh, is full of crafty di diplomacy, and as you said in your report, uh, it's in Thailand's DNA to be resilient and resourceful, and it has been, it has proved in the history how well uh, it uh, interacted with uh, external powers and competing external powers. Do you think uh, those historical experiences help Taiwan, Thailand at the, the current um, uh, great power competition? And how does Thailand, you see, sustain the pressure from the intensifying great power competition? You, you mentioned a very good, uh, a good understanding, I think, uh, perception of Thailand uh, from outside, you know, and uh, inside as well. I think Thai people are very proud of their uh, long-time established um, kind of world-famous independence in a neighborhood where the neighbors, the regional states in Southeast Asia have been uh, colonized, they've come under influence of foreign powers and so on. Thailand has not. Uh, and this is something that uh, marks Thailand uh, out of the pack, you know, something that uh, Thailand's uh, unique, uniquely known for. However, this time, you know, unlike the past, I think the, the domestic conflict this time uh, is really holding the country back uh, from taking a more assertive, a more constructive role abroad. Uh, it's uh, diplomacy in the past, very crafty, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, world famous, uh, and it has uh, allowed Thailand to survive through the thick and thin of uh, international life. You know, there have been a lot of headwinds in the past. As a smaller state, we don't get to dictate these things. The bigger powers do, but Thailand's managed to to get by. This time, I'm I'm just afraid that you know uh, the, the the craftiness that we've seen in the past has not been in play uh, this time. And the domestic, uh, Dr. Hong, the, the domestic outcomes they they impinge on um, the the international geostrategic canvas because Thailand has become more authoritarian, two military coups and democratic setbacks, right? Elected governments have been kicked out at least three times, twice by military, one by judiciary in 2008, 
So this is consequential because as Thailand has become more authoritarian and there's been a democratic rollback reversal, um, this makes Thailand uh, not very appealing to deal with among the Western democracies. Uh, you know, Thailand has faced uh, sanctions and has faced uh, a problem, uh, a bit uh, outcast really. Um, but on the other hand, uh, Thailand has been warmly welcomed by China. Uh, so in, in the kind of the geopolitical rivalry competition between China, I think that uh, yeah, we have to bear in mind that you know, being authoritarian is consequential. There, there is something in it because when you're more authoritarian, you get alienated uh, from Western democracies. But in this day and age, in this era, 2010, 2020s, um, China is open arms. China is an, um, you know, friend to any regime, democratic authority and whatever regime. Um, so I think the, the alienation from Western democracies has uh, brought Thailand or has uh, pushed, nudged Thailand much closer into China's arms. And this is, uh, uh, has a ramification for, for the regional uh, framework and uh, international relations, a geostrategic uh, canvas, because Thailand is more in China's orbit uh, than, than in the past, even though Thailand's a U.S. treaty ally. Interesting that you mentioned that, but uh, since President Trump took office, he's been less critical uh, like uh, than Obama administration in terms of criticizing Thailand in human rights record and, and also its uh, domestic democratic uh, health, so to speak. And also, I think um, Thailand's relations with Japan has been relatively looking good, uh, uh, judging by Japan's investment in the region. And uh, of course, Australia was the first Western liberal democracy to accept Thailand's new political realities by engaging with the Kuli regime in May 2020, 2015, right? So how do you how do you see Australian uh, Thai relations uh, in particular going forward uh, from now? Well, first, you know, when the President Trump um, came to office, uh, there was some optimism that uh, unlike President Obama, the Obama administration really uh, took a hard line on on Thailand because Thailand had uh, you know, two coups in the less than 10 years, 2006, 2014. And Obama, I think, was invested in the relationship with a, a kind of a uh, democracy that Thailand was returning to under the Prime Minister Yingluck Shinawat, who was overthrown in May 2014. So I think the Obama administration and, and President Obama himself, uh, I think they took a, a, a tough line on, on Thailand and against Thai military regime. When President Trump came in, it looked like he was re recalibrating interests and values, you know, placing less emphasis on, on values of uh, uh, human rights and elections and, and so on, and then uh, looking more at the hardcore interests. And uh, it looked like uh, the Trump administration was pushing back uh, against China. And in fact, this was welcome, I think, in the region broadly, uh, including in Thailand. You know, in, in my report um, for ASPI, I made the long mention of this uh, uh, contours of U.S.-Thai relations, how uh, it went uh, sour, it soured in the 1997-98 uh, economic crisis, and then it was kind of like up and down, but mostly on the downside because Thailand's domestic politics turned more military, turned more authoritarian. But then when Trump came in, uh, there was a window of maybe improving the relationship. Uh, there were some signs. Uh, and I think, um, you know, you can see Jennifer Yu visited the White House, right? I mean, this is a junta leader, military leader, prime minister, 
was welcomed at the U.S. White House by President Trump uh, in October 2017. Uh, this was a breakthrough uh, in many ways. I thought that this would uh, relaunch the relationship uh, into, on, a, on a new footing, and to, to a degree it has. However, because Thailand has been mired uh, in the dictatorship and authoritarianism, the constitution was manipulated to keep the military in power and so on, even the Trump administration, you know, in the U.S., uh, Dr. Hong, uh, there's a Trump administration in the White House. There's also a U.S. Um, apparatus, uh, foreign policy apparatus, you know, State Department and all the other agencies and so on. Uh, eventually, they they had to balance their interests and values. And then they don't take a hard line on Thailand for, you know, they, they welcome the election and they know it was a very flawed election under a manipulated constitution. Um, but they, they were less... Uh, I mean, what Trump did welcoming welcoming Prayut, I think uh, that was the limit of how the relationship uh, was relaunched. And now the U.S. take a more kind of mixed, uh, measured line on Thailand. Not too tough, but certainly not lenient. Um, now, this uh, is, is uh, important for us because, you know, Thailand remains very close to China. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned about um, Australia. I think uh, Thailand-Australia relations uh, have gone from strength to strength. It's been very good. Um, you know, former Foreign Minister Bishop, uh, Julie Bishop, was the first uh, major leader uh, of a of a Western democracy to to visit Thailand under the coup regime uh, in in the mid 2015. So that was uh, Australia. I think I make a mention that uh, in the report, Australia was ahead of the curve in many ways. Uh, it saw that you know you have to deal with this military regime because it's going to stay around for a long time. If you don't deal with it, it means you alienate Thailand, which is a uh, a significant country that cannot be uh, ignored. So they they called the shots, uh, I think, early on well. But now I'm I'm afraid that the the China uh, the China factor, the, the, the China's role and geostrategic ambition and assertiveness uh, is is a, a challenge to Australia and uh, in turn a challenge to the region. So I think Australia clearly has become more critical of China. You can see this manifesting in a number of uh, uh, legislation, uh, even popular perception. Um, but in, in Southeast Asia, Dr. Hong, uh, it's different. I think we, we are not uh, alien to dealing with China. Uh, this is a giant residential neighbor uh, we cannot ignore. We have to, uh, to uh, make peace with accommodate to a degree, uh, but I think the other states in the region, in ASEAN, not just Thailand, um, you know, we're looking for ways of uh, balancing the different players, the different major powers. For Thailand and Australia, if Australia um, pursue this uh, uh, kind of uh, tough line, hard line on China, uh, this may uh, end up alienating Australia from the, the regional mix in Southeast Asia. Because if you look around Southeast Asia, it's divided. There are countries that are more pro-China, countries that are less. Um, I think China, Thailand would fall into the China orbit a little bit, uh, along with uh, Laos, uh, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. So I, I call this group uh, CLMT, right? Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand. Vietnam certainly is not uh, within this group, as you, as you know. Um, the Philippines, I think, is a bit twist between, uh, can make up its mind. I think that on the one hand, uh, President Duterte, has bitten the bullet. He said, you know, he has to deal with China. But then I think the apparatus, foreign policy apparatus in the Philippines, including the uh, legislature, they have a lot of reservations about China. 
So the Philippines, I think we have to see how how it will pan out. Uh, you know, the 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 um, the visiting uh, forces agreement, uh, the backtracking to keep that uh, online uh, on board. I think that's a you know kind of an example about how the Philippines is uh, rethinking its relationship with the U.S. Um, and rethinking whether it can accept a uh, dominant China uh, right next door across the, the South China Sea. And then the other countries, you know, kind of divided on China. Um, for, for Thailand uh, and mainland Southeast Asia, if Australia continues to uh, or, or, or intensifies its, its anti-China posture, uh, this will be a dilemma for, for ASEAN countries in dealing with Australia. I also noticed that Australia has been uh, a little bit more assertive in uh, persuading ASEAN countries to, to toe a similar line vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Um, and, you know, this is uh, a lot of this has to do with the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, kind of strategy, uh, outlook. Uh, and you have to be careful because if you uh, uh, force or, or uh, too aggressive in uh, pressuring uh, regional states in Southeast Asia to choose or to toe a line against China, uh, you may end up uh, alienating yourself uh, from them. Very important point. We don't have time to tell all the findings and we also don't want to tell them because we want to invite our listeners to read your excellent report. Thank you so much for your insight, Tijinan. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hong. That's all for this week's episode of Policy Guns and Money. Thank you for listening in. If you have any thoughts about what we've discussed here today, please tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back with another episode next week.